Welcome to the Ludogogi podcast, your monthly games-based learning earworm. We are your hosts. I'm Antonis. And I'm Sarah. And we're delighted to welcome our fifth Ludogogi podcast guest today, Stefan Kuhler. Stefan likes to work at the intersections of different fields, combining experiences in modding and writing about games with an interest in various topics such as aesthetical education, augmented and virtual reality and artificial intelligence. His main quest, not only as a teacher and lecturer, is to understand and envision how humans are able to learn, yet also to creatively express themselves in media, especially through games. Welcome, Stefan. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Stefan, uh, one of the things we always like to ask our guests is um, a fun fact about themselves. So, uh, what have you got to tell us that other people don't know? Well, I thought in light of the episode now, um, and if, if it's not on my LinkedIn profile because... I'm deeply ashamed, of course, um, with my profession now um, is the fact that um, I actually at school did not pursue ICT. So I was able to do ICT and I was very, very bad at programming because it was very, very boring. If you just had to program, program a clock, like I already have a clock. Why do I need to program another clock and um, or a watch? And um, so I, I failed miserably. And then I didn't pursue it. And uh, funnily enough, now I'm teaching ICT <laughs> to students. And of course, the interesting part is like what happened in between. And I think uh, it may lead us to um, one of the main topics uh, of our conversation, which is like modding, because I actually like got into game development by uh, modding games. So that was my path into game design. It's interesting. I used to teach ICT as well, and I think the things that we ask students to do are very boring, and that is the problem. But I guess that really sort of links in with what we're talking about here and with ludagogy in general, is that how much games can actually bring interest and engagement um, to that kind of learning as well. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think like uh, the interesting part here is that, um, of course, you need to have like an access to programming or to computers, to um, games. And um, you can, of course, like only uh, be um, like uh, a player and only um, uh, play the games. But um, the interesting part is, of course, like if you uh, think, how could I change the game? How could I turn it into something else? And um, so I always thought like um, the term game-based learning is an interesting starting point to think about it because um, normally game-based learning implies that you have like a game and you use the game as a learning tool. And um, if you really like uh, literally have a look at the word, it's like game-based. So um, if you like think of the game as a base for something else, then of course you can like think about what uh, about modding or how about changing the game? Like, uh, for example, um, uh, Bennett de Corbin, the well-played game, maybe you know uh, this title, um, where he's talking like about play and ever-evolving play. Um, it's very interesting because I uh, just um, did research from a diploma thesis on modding, how um, it evolved like with modding. Like uh, at the beginning, actually, games were only processes. Like the first game that was uh, um, developed, uh, Space War, uh, in 1962 at the MIT, there were students um, and they were developing the software and it was not like we have a final product, but it was ever-changing and was adapted to the needs of the players. 
And then, of course, like um, there was always like uh, going back and forth between like having access to the source code and to the game, and on the other side, like game developers like um, uh, putting up walled gardens, and the player weren't able like to uh, to to work with uh, things like, um, uh, of course, um, most evidently with the arcade machines where you actually had to like open up the machines and maybe get to the hardware to uh, change things if you wanted to change something in the game. And um, later, of course, we have the personal computers in the 1780s where the people, again, were able to uh, work with software. Then again, of course, uh, like uh, the game developers tried to shut players out before they dif discovered um, to have like a very short uh, review of history of modding before they discovered of course that it's not bad for them to enable uh, players to work um, with uh, games and to envision their own games and to turn them into their own games and then of course we have things like uh, mods for doom we have counter-strike and everything uh, like even fortnite coming from uh, from modding with battle royale um, at uh, the daisy mod so um, I think it's very interesting to see this back and forth and then to think, of course, like um, uh, also for the students, how do we start with game development? Do we start from scratch or do we start maybe with an environment already where they just have to uh, to uh, yeah um, change some tiny things and then they have their first a sign of, oh, I can actually do something here and I can um, create something. And then, of course, hopefully gets better and better and they can do even more. And um, so I, uh, at the moment, uh, I'm working like this at the ICT class that I teach, that they have not Minecraft, but MindTest, the open source version. And they start with very simple modding tasks to get into game development. Yeah, funnily enough, I, I studied computers, <laughs> but I also never enjoyed programming. <laughs> uh, I think one of my worst experiences while studying was um, when we were learning the theory of programming and we were tested in programming, writing code on paper without oh, a compiler. Yes. Mm. Imagine yeah, that. <laughs> I, I remember that. I remember doing that. That's, that's yeah. Crazy. That's 20 years ago, so hopefully things have improved in, uh, in when it comes to studying computers, at least. Um, but yeah, you, you already mentioned how you're using modding for learning. Uh, and I, I want to expand a bit on that. Like, Why do you think modding is important for learning? Well, um, first off, as I already said, it's like the starting point. So you don't start like from scratch. So you start with something existing and you can uh, refine it, you can test things. So I think that's also very important for game design, like um, you don't have to uh, make up all the rules first, but you can change like maybe one rule and see the effects of this and maybe only uh, change uh, a certain aspect of it and see uh, what it does. And um, then of course, like um, I find it very interesting to, um, uh, yeah, that uh, players could be uh, able to um, modify uh, games by other students. So you could have like an ever-evolving modification where like students start first with a game and then the next team evolves on that and so on. And um, so that could also be a very interesting learning experience like to talk about this 
Um, what did you do differently? What can we learn from others? Because I think the modding um, aspect, uh, what I found very helpful when I started, because I wasn't really like into programming, <laughs> as I said before, was that you have this community aspect of modding. So it's not like you're in your own space. Even for the tiniest games, there's a certain community of people. And if you get stuck and if you have a problem, you can ask other people. Other people are helping you. So that's, I think, the interesting part, like not having this idea of you, you just have to do it all on your own but you can uh, draw from other people you can draw inspiration from other people's work and so that's um, i think this communal and social aspect of modding is also very interesting in learning because i think we want to get from this typical like um you're an individual and you get taught something and then you have to spit it out again in a test but more like into this, you have to collaborate with other people, you have to work together, you have to um, be able to uh, to uh, evaluate the work of other people. You have to find out what works, what doesn't work, what can be improved. And um, that's actually how the game development, uh, like for the first title, Space War, started. It was always like someone getting into the room and saying, wouldn't it be nice if... For example, we had like uh, uh, real astronomical um, correct um, uh, sky with stars. And then they implemented in the game. And the next one said, wouldn't it be nice if we had like uh, different kinds of torpedoes and rockets in the game? And then they put it in. So um, I think that's why I see a lot of potential for modding um in uh, when it comes to learning because um you have like this uh this building on existing ideas you have um the possibility to work with others and um you um can uh, prototype shorter you can uh, try things out and not starting by scratch because what i found is really like um uh, for game development um, mostly students are very um, confident and they're like uh, starting, I want to do like a, a GTA uh, game. And then of course, it's not so easy to start from scratch because there's so much involved and it's easier if they just maybe start by modding and then gradually like um, uh, test their own ideas. And later, hopefully from what they learned, they're able to create their own games. It's interesting how you mentioned the the communal aspect of learning. Uh, interesting in a frustrating way, I guess. As humans, we've always um, learned in groups and from each other. And then when when the, the, the modern form of uh, public education appeared, <laughs> somehow we forced people uh, into a, a competitive uh, individual learning mode. <laughs> and then after they graduate, we also asked them to go back into teams and try to learn from each other and work together. It's like, it's very counterintuitive. Yes. And I, I was just thinking from what you were saying earlier as well about, you know, finding, finding coding um, as a, as a learner, quite boring. Um, sort of the idea that what we do is we, we say, right, you're going to be learning a new language and you're going to start off with hello world. And it's so long before the students get to anything that's going to be in the slightest bit interesting to them. If you're, if you're making them do that. Um, so, you know, if you start off with, Here's Doom, and and here's here's the toolkit to to uh, make your own levels for Doom. They've got something interesting straight away. Um, so you know, from the engagement aspect, from the learn as a learners, that's, that's so important. I think. 
Mm. But on the other uh, side, of course, it doesn't have to stop there. No. So it's just like the starting point. Yeah. And then um, uh, you can delve as deep as you like. Yeah. So I think that's the very interesting. And of course, the scary part of game design, like you can go like always go deeper and deeper and deeper and try to add like feature creep, like you add this feature and this feature and this feature. So um, uh, it's like um, not that it's sim simpler to do modding, but maybe on the contrary that you sometimes have to be very creative because you're using existing works, you're using existing game engines, and you have to find out how can I make it work in this or how can I uh, find a, a workaround to do what I want to do. Yeah. And um, so it can also foster creativity. And, and I think from from what um, uh, Antonis was saying as well, it's far more so far more in tune with what you will actually be doing if you become a, a game developer, because you'll never be starting from Hello World. You'll always be starting from something that already exists and working with it. Even you know, even if you're creating a game from scratch, you'll you'll probably be working with existing game engines and so on. So yes, it's it's kind of reflective of how they'll be working, which education quite often isn't <laughs> yeah interestingly uh, when it comes to game designers it's often the case that um uh, they have like a history in modding or at least like had their first um attempts and then maybe got to uh, doing their own game so of course there was a phase in between um and uh in some case of course it um it goes on where like uh, there were the first real um, intuitive uh, engines for free, like Unity or Unreal Engine, where you could do a lot. And so people switched like maybe from modding to indie games if they already had like a vision or wanted to do something uh, more. But for the starting point, like building up a portfolio, doing the first attempts and then trying to get it into the public. And that's of course also the interesting part, like you uh, give it to other people, you uh, get some feedback and you can uh, update it, you can evolve it, and um, you learn from this experience as well uh, later. And uh, of course, like uh, if you're not like a um, uh, sole developer, you're working with teams, maybe even globally, you work with pe people all over the world, and uh, you have to be able to get them all together like on a vision. And so that's also something that you uh, later have to uh, be able in the games industry. So when you're when you're working with games, do you have a, a favorite game mechanic that you, you feel drawn to either when you're creating games or when you're modding other games? And uh, how do you um, how do you work with that game mechanic? Well, I'm coming from writing. So of course, I'm not really like the stats guy who's interested in like thousands of numbers and variables and everything. So I'm more like interesting in how uh, can you interact with the world? What can you do in the world? How can you change the world? How does the world react to you? And um, so I mostly um, wrote uh, or developed uh, point and click adventures. And there, of course, like you have a mostly static system that you build. And um, so I think my game mechanic would be like, maybe called like action, the action game mechanics, like what can you do in these environments that you uh, create and what is possible with the objects? How can you combine the objects and uh, how can you build up puzzles for the players? So um, that's what interests me, like what happens if, um, and of course, like, um, 
making the player ask this question as well, like getting into environment and then having this new environment, having new objects uh, to work with, and then always asking what happens if I put the hamster in the microwave and so on, like in some games. And <laughs> of course, um, uh, it's very interesting like to uh, think as a writer, what can I allow, What where can I limit the uh, possibilities because the possibilities, of course, sometimes can be endless if you combine all of the different objects. So I know a German writer, a game writer, who actually like tried to write an individual response to every possible object, object, and object environment uh, combination. And it was a ton of work, and he never did it again, I think. So mostly, like, you have some standard text, and uh, I think it's really interesting because um, people from outside, they don't really see what's, um, uh, what, what it is to game writing. So the part um, that uh, is, of course, uh, maybe interesting to them is like the nice dialogues and the uh, uh, quippy um, uh, object texts. But in the background, it's a lot of busy work like writing all of the text, like writing standard uh, texts. And um, you also have to be able to like this part um, if you want to be like a game writer. I think it's going to be interesting to see how um, generative AI is going to change that, um, definitely within within game setting, sort of NPC conversations and interactions with objects, I think. Yeah, so they, um, I, I follow this field as well because it's very interesting. And um, they already started like to um, write these barks, so just short comments by any NPCs um, uh, with AI. And of course, later maybe we have dialogues with NPCs created by AI. And uh, the question is, where does it leave like um, game writers or narrative designers? It's more like that you maybe train the model and that you have yeah. like a certain style and that you have some ideas and you give it like um, uh, some fodder uh, and then it can create from it and not from nothing. And you can guide it better than simply just saying you have like uh, 16 billion texts that you can draw from and now write me an interesting dialogue that most likely won't yield an interesting result. No, no. I think it becomes grey goo if you just leave it to it. So mm -hmm. I think it, it. I think it's to me. It looks like it will remove a lot of the busy work, um, but the the creativity is still required to come from a human being. Yeah, but the busy work can be fun as well. So I, uh, mm. it, it maybe it's just me, but I really enjoy <laughs> like uh, having uh, challenges. I may you just have to see it, of course, like as a challenge, maybe positively, yeah. not like oh, it's dreadful, maybe, and then you get, like, a task, like, write um, 300 uh, encounters, what happens if you go into a ruin, and then, of course, the, the first 10 are pretty easy, and then it gets tougher and tougher to come up with something interesting, but this is, of course, also where it gets start, uh, where, it's, uh, where it starts to get interesting, that way around, um, because you really come to things that you maybe haven't thought before the first time. It's really like you always have to up your game to uh, uh, be in the lingo, and you always have to come up with something uh, maybe even more um, interesting or um, more creative than before. 
And um, so, yeah, that's where uh, sometimes the match can happen. Sometimes, of course, it can be uh, horrible if you uh, uh, take it to bed or into the shower and then you think about uh, <laughs> what could be interesting 30 uh, city names for a game but i enjoyed this part as well so i'm um, with my latest project i'm not a narrative designer so i'm not like um i wrote the story i'm writing the text but i'm not like into the details of how many uh points does this unit have or this unit and something like this i leave this to the game designers i'm just providing the context and it's also uh, very fulfilling like to uh, be creative in this like creating a whole world and um, um trying to put it all together into one vision sounds like an interesting approach that you have based on your experience and it, it brings me to the it's very related to what you just said but uh, i want to make it more explicit what is the biggest challenge that you faced in your work and how did you overcome it maybe <laughs> well the challenge is of course um organization really like for example or especially if you um work in narrative games you really have to be like organized if you um create these structures the other thing would be of course to create like a system where you have emergent storytelling and then of course you also have to design the system so there are some interesting stories coming from but especially if you build a narrative game where you have like the whole um, paths already mapped out, you have to be really organized. So I remember when I started writing my uh, first um, series game, it was um, like set in the Middle Ages and um, I was tasked to write the dialogues and the text for the objects and objects interactions. And um, I wrote it in Word, and I just found out that it was terrible to write in Word because I just had to uh, write down all of the conditions, were they fulfilled, were they not fulfilled. So I did some scripting, not knowing that I did some scripting for that state, <laughs> um, scripting for me to know what happens now. So did he have the letter or if he doesn't have the letter, what happens now? And later, of course, I got to... Um, put it into graphs so I could have like um, uh, an overview of what happens like in a level and what is connected to which and it was pretty crazy um, so looking back to do it like in a linear fashion because I think um, sometimes I'm very cocky to say like um, game writing or narrative design is like Champions League if you are in football terms um, it's like uh, everyone can write a movie script Okay, maybe not everyone, but like in linear fashion, like writing one story, but having like the overview of all of the possible encounters and how they can um, interact with each other and how they can change things. So that's the real challenge. And um, so organization is one that you really have to be able to have an overview, not to forget something, to be able to put all together. And then, of course, if you um, are like uh, not only writing the game, but in the lucky position of being a narrative designer where you can also create the puzzles and the riddles. It's also like uh, important that you put all of the uh, pieces together. And um, I think the one of the greatest challenges for me was that I reused a stage in uh, one of my recent games and I um, had another puzzle in it and you had to have the same objects leading to another puzzle, 
but they changed over time because it was another time and that was really hard to come up with like which objects do I need and where do I have to put them and how does it all work to put this all together. And of course, like if you're working with abstract things, like uh, for example, um, I did the serious game about uh, the life of uh, Martin Luther. And um, there you have to, um, uh, or the, the player was tasked to experience how Luther came to a certain insight. And then of course, like in the movie, it would be easy. You see like him sitting there and writing and he has his horeca moment. And in a game that would be rather boring, simply watching someone have like an insight. And so it was um, really hard to think about how can I make uh, the player um, follow this uh, journey, like this uh, train of thought. And it was like coming from object to object that you always have like uh, hints from one hint uh, going to the next object. And then at the same time, follow like this journey from um, Greek philosophers to early um, uh, scholars uh, for the church and then um, to his insight. So follow this through like uh, this mechanic. So that was maybe the hardest puzzle to come up with because it wasn't uh, simple like you simply put this object, use it with another object and then uh, something happens. But how can you like um, let the player um, yeah, be be active in this project, not simply like an observer, but be active in this process of uh, having these thoughts and um, uh, uh, developing these ideas. M many designers that I know absolutely dread the existence of a game design document. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> um, well, to be honest, um, I can't really remember if I ever worked with a real game design document, even when I work <laughs> with um, uh, like uh, bi uh, bigger companies. So of course there were some uh, some uh, guidelines that I got as a writer because at one project, for example, it was very interesting. I just had to write one um, one chapter, and then of course you have to know what is happening before and what is happening after, and you have to be consistent with the characters. So, of course, you get like some descriptions from the uh, lead designer, like what uh, you have to be careful of and uh, how it works and how normally um, they work. Like, for example, uh, don't have like uh, 15 hotspots in one room, but maybe keep it to seven or eight. Uh, uh, so, and then only interesting hotspots. So, of course, there were some rules. But um, I only got it like for this one chapter, not the whole game design Bible or the whole game design document. So I'm afraid I can't really say that I ever really worked with a full game design document. Or maybe like in that you. case, when I <laughs> um, when I did the narrative design for um, uh, my latest bigger serious game on Martin Luther, um, I was the game design document because um, I uh, really, I, uh, this was really like uh, luck to be in such a position and uh, to have um, yeah, the opportunity to work like this and that people trust in you because I started from scratch. I wrote uh, the story. I um, developed the uh, different stages and then I started by doodling the first uh, stages like uh, 
there's a shelf and maybe there's a door. And then, of course, I handed it over to someone who's more capable of doing graphics. And then I got it back and then I was able to say, okay, I want to have this shelf moved over to the left, this one to the right, and it doesn't work like this. And um, then, of course, uh, they made it pretty and shiny afterwards that it looked very nice. And then, of course, I was able to uh, add the puzzles to add the texts and uh, everything. So that was very uh, nice because it was all in one hand. But of course, it was a lot of pressure. So um, after that, I really promised uh, not to do uh, such big projects done uh, um, um, uh, for a long time because uh, it's very time consuming, especially if you have like a full-time job um, next to it to do such great projects. Cool. So apart from the games that you've worked on, um, what are what are your other sort of favorite games that you like that you've come across that you've taken inspiration from or you like to play? Well, interestingly, I'm uh, like in, in my on my uh, own playing side. I'm more interested in um, the mechanic games, like um, games uh, like shooters, uh, which are played uh, when I was young or turn-based strategy. So a lot of like thinking about how could this evolve if I do this uh, um, this action and um, maybe uh, trying out, then reverting back. Like I'm, I have to admit I'm uh, terrible at shooters uh, when the single player always press like quick save because I want to do like the room perfectly. And then if I go in and it doesn't work like this, maybe I load again and I do it again. So it's more like uh, enjoying the art of like uh, uh, doing it very nicely and not like uh, simply enjoying the experience and running through the game. So um, that's what I'm interested in, like emergent storytelling, uh, emergent stories, emergent experiences from the uh, uh, systems that I experienced there and from the physics and everything there. And um, the last uh, game that, or the game that I'm uh, currently playing is uh, called Storyteller from Daniel ben McGee. I don't know if you encountered it already. I, I know it, but I haven't played it yet. Yes, so um, I followed it for a long time. So I remember in 2016, I came across Prototype and I used it with my students and uh, later I found out that there would be a full game and then later I prepared a lecture um, on the game, how to use it um, in uh, teaching literature or like maybe not literature, but um, the art of storytelling, of creating plots and everything. And um, then I uh, thought it would be a good idea to uh, talk to the creator himself. And I had a very nice chat with Daniel Van McGee. And um, so I'm, I'm very involved in the project. But apart from that, I, um, I really enjoy like playing it and also playing with my uh, daughter. Um, uh, like she's simply trying out how could I put the characters into the frames and what is happening there. And uh, it's not like um, that she maybe is playing it efficiently like an adult who wants to create a certain story and wants to check like the boxes and get to the end, but she's simply like trying out what's happening. And so it's very interesting because this game is an hybrid of like, on the one hand, of course, you have like a puzzle and you have like 
a solution you have to get to. Of course, you can have different um, paths to get to the solution. On the one hand, it's an engine um, in the background. So the engine is checking and the engine is um, computing what is happening if uh, these characters get together or if uh, this background um, is used by the player. And it's not like that everything is already written in stone, but the engine computes it. So, of course, I said to uh, Daniel, um, it would be nice to have this as a sandbox because imagine you have like all of the characters you could put in and you can create your stories and the engine tries to come up with a story just from what characters you put in and what um, uh, backgrounds you use and uh, tries to make uh, to turn it into a plot. But uh, of course, he said it's um, very, very hard because um, they had to limit like the possibilities because then again, with narrative design, I can understand uh, it can get endless uh, to possibilities. And then of course, it's very hard for an indie game developer to offer something like this. But maybe one can hope if the game sells well, maybe they also add a sandbox mode. I would hope to. So I can only recommend for people to get the game and to play it because it's a very interesting experience. Uh, Stefan, where do you feel AI will contribute to game design? I think it will be very interesting how this uh, will work out because I'm preparing a lecture or a very short lecture on AI and game development uh, in June for a conference on games and literature. And um, so I followed, of course, being a narrative designer, being interested like in uh, telling stories and uh, the possibilities with AI, but also in the grander scheme of like how will AI change game development. And um, so I think maybe we will see um, a big flood of AI-generated games who are simply there like to fulfill your need for I want to play something now. Like um, when I talk to my students, when they tell me of Roblox, it's the same. Like they have an endless amount yeah. of possible things they can play. And I think this will be like one big part maybe of the industry. And then maybe on the other side, uh, the indie game developers will, of course, um, be able to, or hopefully will be able to use AI as well in development and maybe that will help them. But maybe they will focus more on the art aspect, like the art yeah, games. Yeah. And um, it will be maybe even more important what is or who's the human behind it, what's the story behind it, what's the uh, emotion, what's the connection to the, um, the gameplay that I get there. How can I experience something maybe uh, in the shoes of another person or how can I take over a role? And how can I have this connection? Because um, um, that's something maybe that AI can fake, but maybe we still like uh, with literature, like we have this mainstream literature, like you can read that also uh, they already started like with AI um, literature. So I heard of a platform where they, um, uh, where you can submit um, short stories, science fiction short stories, and they had to um, close their uh, application process because there were so many, so many uh, a flood of AI stories coming in, and um, so maybe it will be more important like um, who's the um, who's the person behind the project, 
and uh, what's the 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 the, the message what's the, the meaning and maybe we get to what um, some people try to uh, uh, yeah try to uh, install in the games industry like the concept of auteur games because um, uh, I know at least in Germany there was uh, one company that I also worked for that they tried to push that like um, in film you also have like auteur films and they tried to push like and they said like um, of course it's the whole team that's connected but um, then you have like one person and this person has a special vision and you buy the game off like for example maybe in um, international terms like you buy a David Cage game or something like this and then it's like uh, you uh, watch um, Steven Spielberg movie and this like coming from this uh, person and you know the style and so this could be very interesting how this plays out like um if the art games are flooded in uh in the ai games uh, which offer like a lot of replayability and everything and a lot of playtime, or if uh, people yearn again to play um games that uh, mean something to them and uh, that mean something to their creator and um, how it will all play out. Because I think AI, of course, maybe can help the creators now to um, share their vision and maybe hopefully help democratize like in game development because for now it's still like uh, very hard to access um, the tools and what you have to know and everything before you can start. And maybe um, there will be platforms, just like you said, or tools that help uh, with the initial or with the busy works as we had before. And then you can focus on your creative vision. Yeah, games are art because they are a result of creative process and a combination of different forms of art. So. Uh, when it comes to AI, I have the same concerns as well as the same excitement. <laughs> I agree with you that it may help uh, sort of democratize part of the creativity, but there are a lot of concerns about um, uh, privacy, uh, intellectual property, remunerating uh, art that has been copied, original art that has been copied without consent and all that. And where I think it will lead is eventually uh, it will... AI will help to replace some parts that are of the creative process that are repetitive and predictable and give more way for, for humans to do what is what only humans can do, which is create original uh, things instead of just uh, the same old, same old. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, Stefan, just to sort of round off um, our chat today, um, what is a lesson that you've learned from designing games and from modding, of course, um, that can be applied outside of games in, in real life? Uh, well, I would uh, turn to Eric Zimmerman here. Maybe you've heard of the Manifesto of the Ludic Century. Yeah. Because, um, <laughs> yes. of course, I always use it in my uh, seminars and uh, everything just to uh, start and to uh, talk about why I'm here and why I'm telling them about games or why we have to uh, think about games and have to um, think about games in learning in school and everything. And uh, I think the short answer is always um, that games are used as a substitute for other teaching material. Like uh, you don't use a book, but we use a game now to learn about climate change, for example, or other topics. And 
what I find even more interesting is to think about games as a medium themselves. So um, uh, if you have like uh, English or German or literature or language um, uh, tuition, um, the question is always like, how do, do different media express ideas and express them differently in their ways, like uh, film is able or has other means to express ideas as a book. And of course, a game as well. And um, most of the time, uh, people get stuck on the uh, narrative um, layer of games, like uh, that you can uh, use them as a substitute because they also have a story uh, for a book. And of course, it's also interesting to have a look at the um, ludic level and to see how games as systems work and how they to um, uh, refer to Ian Bogus, of course, with um, his procedural rhetoric, how they are able to say it badly, manipulate us or in a positive light, like to guide us or how um, do they give us possible actions and um, don't give us some other actions. And we can question, of course, why don't I have the opportunity to do this? Why am I only able to shoot in a game? Why can't I do diplomacy and talk to the people and be nice, for example? And um, so uh, I think this is very important to like question the systems of games and to um, see games as systems. And then, as Simmerman says, of course, this is a skill that we can not only use to um, talk about uh, games as a medium, but also, of course, um, because we live in a very systemic um, society where uh, we have to really uh, know how everything is connected, what are the variables, um, and um, to deal with this uncertainty that we have right now. Like not uh, everything is set, everything is in movement, and you have to be able to read uh, systems. And of course, not only being able to read them, but being able to change the systems and to uh, modify things, to be able to, for example, fight climate change and everything, uh, all of the other crises that we're dealing right now. And um, so I would agree with the Zimmerman that we really have to bring like gaming literacy into schools and then not only like that they can understand better what they are playing, which would be nice as well, because from what I see, um, I don't know if you can uh, generalize it, but um, I think there's a danger, to put it like this, that um, the younger generation maybe focuses on the playing part and only like uh, follows um, the, the system set by the designers and not express themselves or try to change something in the systems. So, um, of course, it's uh, hard to say because everyone's like um, uh, saying that the uh, next generation is doing something wrong, which we did better <laughs> before in our generation. <laughs> so that's like typically. But um, I think we really as educators have to work on uh, enabling students to see that there's a potential of expressing themselves in games, in systems, and what are the limitations, what are the possibilities to um, experience something differently than uh, shooting it in a movie or writing it down in uh, text. 
and um, also to uh, learn from their gaming experience because they are all playing, of course. But um, it would be, um, I think, wouldn't be enough to simply like have game lit gaming literacy from playing. You should also be able to have the gaming literacy how to um, go into the systems and how to change things. So that brings us, of course, back to modifying and modding. Yes. So that's where all like the, the lines go together. And um, uh, I am in different fields. I am interested in many things, but it all comes together. Like everything is hopefully supportive uh, to each other, to making people able to um, enjoy games, but also enjoy making of games. Well, thank you so much for, for coming to talk to us, Stefan. It's been really, really fascinating. It was a pleasure. It was a real pleasure to have you, Stefan. So if people want to connect with you uh, from our audience, where will they find you? So, uh, of course, you're um, welcome to follow me on Twitter or maybe get into my lovely network on LinkedIn. And yeah, see you there and um, uh, looking forward to meet you and to create new things, uh, connect dots and uh, being inspired and inspire each other. Thank you so much for being here. This has been the Ludogoyki podcast. Game, Game over! over.